Habakkuk chapter 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let me just uh, pray briefly before we come to that passage again. Father, we ask that you would indeed speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word that leaves us not cast adrift in the world, not uh, isolated and wondering who you are and what you would have us do, but Lord, your word speaks to us. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you might speak through your word and that you might speak through me, I pray, that you might achieve your purposes in us this morning, that you might mould us and shape us into the people you would have us to be. For your glory we ask it. Amen. 
If you keep that passage there open with you, you'll find that helpful. We begin this morning a new series, uh, looking through this book of Habakkuk. I know you'll be wondering why we're going through a book that's sort of so familiar to you. I know that you'll be sort of reading the Minor Prophets all the time, and uh, you'll be wondering whether I, I sort of managed to hit all the themes that you already know of, because uh, they'll just be there fresh in your memory, won't they? Uh, so one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because that I suspect that probably Habakkuk is not sort of the first sort of place that you wind up sort of looking in your sort of daily readings. Uh, and it's also part of a slightly longer term sort of strategy of uh, in the new year we'll be looking through the book of Romans and Habakkuk serves as a really good introduction to it. Paul begins his letter to the Romans really with this sort of central statement of what it's going to be about, of saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation, first to the Jew and then also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, and he's quoting from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Or you'll notice the footnote in your Bible there that might say, the one who is by faith righteous shall live. And so this really is the major theme of the book of Habakkuk. Uh, and so it will be useful for us to see how Habakkuk writes about these themes here for people in the Old Testament. And then around about six, 650 years or so later, Paul writes for a very different kind of context. And Habakkuk as a book, as a prophet, is somewhat different because usually what we expect with a book of prophecy is we hear maybe a little bit of the origin story of the prophet and some of the things that go on for them. And then the major part of the book is the messages that the prophet gives to the people of God. The role of the prophet was to be the sort of sp spokesperson for God, between God and his people. We see that sort of established with Moses and then on and on with the range of characters. But Habakkuk is different because although he's a prophet, although he's God's spokesperson to God's people at this moment, the book is different because the message that we hear from Habakkuk is Habakkuk's own wrestling with God, not his presentation to the people. We actually get something of an inside look sort of behind the curtain of what it can look like to be a prophet. That sort of struggle with God where we see Habakkuk himself struggling to hear God, struggling to understand God and his purposes. So the three sort of themes that we'll see this morning is the pain of unanswered prayer, the reconciling of God, a perfect God, with an imperfect world, and what we do when we don't get God. And you'll see this morning, uh, I've titled it Habakkuk's Complaint, because that's really what this is. And there are two complaints that Habakkuk gives. In verses 1 to 4 here, it's about suffering. And then from 12 to 17, it's about injustice. Let's look at those first four verses there. I wonder if uh, you have ever attempted any sort of boxing or sparring Recognize that as I begin to say this, this might come across like I'm, I'm trying to sort of subliminally tell you how tough I am. Uh, I was tricked uh, into getting involved with this. I, I once for a short few weeks, and it was short partly because of this, uh, was part of a kickboxing club. It was partly because the kids were doing it, and I felt that sort of thing. Of, I was asked, and if I said no, 
you know, I'd look really bad, uh, and I didn't want to look bad, so yeah, 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 I'll go. Uh, and then I didn't realize that, you know, a major part of it was, you know, this, you do all the sort of fitness stuff, you do a few moves, and then it's sparring with people, and I'm like, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? And my respect for people who do that just went sort of through the roof, because you don't realize how hard it is. You don't realize how tiring it is, how utterly scary it is. Three minutes is a long, long time. I can tell you for me, it felt like forever. And so to keep doing that round after round, your legs go to jelly, your hands feel like feathers, it feels like you're not even doing anything. Your heart starts to beat sort of out of your chest. Mike Tyson, speaking about boxing, former heavyweight champion says, you know, everybody has a plan until they're punched in the mouth. Something changes at that moment where you realize, Oh my goodness, fight or flight, (laughs) what do I do? See, what's really tested in those moments is, what do you do, how do you keep going, when everything else tells you to quit? So what will Habakkuk do as he goes through this pain, this pain of not hearing God, not understanding God, though he's the prophet of God, What will he do when everything else would tell you maybe you should give up? How will he play through the pain? See, the problem here is that question that you'll know as much as me. Why, God, are you not doing what I want? And here the request is quite reasonable. It's a request for justice, a request for an answer to the reality of his suffering. And in light of God's patience, or his grace to people here, Habakkuk is asking, where's your judgment? Where's your justice? You see that tension. He says, we're told here that the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, that whether it's uh, an oracle is, uh, it, again, it's slightly different to some of the other prophets where the word of the Lord comes to them. And this is, you know, equally, you know, Habakkuk is going to receive the word of the Lord, but there's something different about it. It's an oracle. And the word is about like a burden. Well, sometimes a song, lament. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. There's no origin story for Habakkuk here. We don't really fully know exactly who he is. We don't really find out. It doesn't seem to be so important. It's just straight to the message. So who is Habakkuk? Well, Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets. He's a contemporary of Nahum and Zephaniah. They all sort of minister at roughly a similar time period and share a very similar message. And the message could be broken down really to four Simple points, that God is sovereign, that God oversees the action of humanity, that God will judge the wicked, and God will deliver the righteous. And Habakkuk is bringing this message, to try to put it to some historical context, after the reign of faithful King Josiah, the one who sort of refines the law of God and decides to renew and revolutionize the people of God, to go back to the word of God and to be faithful to all that God had called them to. He's now gone, and instead we're now in the reign of Jehoiakim. He's installed by Egypt in 609 B.C., And he's put there really as something of a puppet. And Jehoiakim is uh, another faithless king. 
he brings back some of the faithless, idolatrous practices that Josiah had removed. And Habakkuk himself may well be a professional, a sort of temple prophet. And at this point, and this is where he's given this oracle, this song, this burden, at this point prophets were not only delivering the word of God, but one of the ways through which they would do that is also through music. So it might well be, and there's a section of this book in chapter 3 that is intended actually to be musical, that Habakkuk is something of a prophet musician who will bring these sort of prophetic songs before the people of God, giving the word of God. And so you would think, If anyone would understand God and his purposes, wouldn't it be Habakkuk? If anyone would have been able to work past that sort of feeling of faith and yet frustration that we live in, wouldn't it be him? And yet, we see both those things in Habakkuk. Because... What we're to take from that is we all battle through both faith and frustration. And yet, Habakkuk is a hopeful book because the center point of this book is chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within it, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So here's the first problem that Habakkuk lays out. The first problem is the pain of unanswered prayer. Look at verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And you might, even as you read that and hear that, you might think back to some of the Psalms in which the psalmist will do similar things. How long? I've waited and I've waited. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And here's the irony. The Habakkuk may well be praying this in the temple. Here he is at service in the house of the Lord saying, how long am I going to cry out to you and simply hear nothing back? The prophet, the spokesman of God, the spokesman to the people of God is saying, I hear nothing. Here he is, coming to the temple, doing the work of the Lord, crying out to the Lord, and he feels there's simply no response. His voice goes out, and it just comes back. Don't you know that feeling? Don't you know that anguish? Here he is, playing through the pain. Cry to you, and you will not hear. And yet, there's an important correction there, isn't there? He feels as though he's not hearing back from God, and so he says, "How long will I cry out, and you will not hear?" Don't equate God not answering the way that you want with him not hearing your request. Those two things are not the same. It feels like it in that moment, doesn't it? But those two things are not the same. How long will I cry to you and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of a God here who Habakkuk is crying out of the violence and the oppression and the wickedness of the people around him 
and asking to be put a stop to, and yet it seems as though God is not intervening. He's not saving. How do we make sense of that? How can a good God not intervene here? How can a loving God not save his people here? The best way I could think of some of this is to think about parenting. Jordan Peterson, clinical psychiatrist, talks about uh, the useful neglect of children and what he means and he grounds that in an example of uh, at times leaving his young children to play on their own. There's a sense in which that's neglectful, but it's a useful neglect. The idea is for them to be able to learn, to be able to self-regulate and to uh, manage themselves to some extent. And he talks about this. He says, if you would let her be, get through that initial bit of misery, then she would learn how to regulate herself. He says, furthermore, there's a danger that you'll overprotect your children and provide them with too much. We don't understand how much we should stay hands off and let them go out there and make their own mistakes and find their way. His point is to say that actually many people have become overprotected, and the result is that they find themselves not very resilient. Sometimes it's a counterintuitive thing, but sometimes for the good of your children, you have to allow them to have that certain space to be able to go through things, to be able to learn to manage for themselves. If you do everything for them, when will they learn to be able to self-regulate? There's a useful level of neglect, isn't there? And maybe this is what God is doing here. The first problem is the pain of unanswered prayer. The second problem is the pain of living in a sinful society. He says here, verse 3, why do you cause me to see iniquity? And here's the problem, here's the struggle. There's two different groups of people that are going to be spoken about here, of being sinful and being full of this sort of iniquity and wickedness, and he gives plenty of examples of it. The second one is going to be about this people that God raises up through which to bring judgment. But here, Habakkuk is talking about the people of God. It is the people of God that have become wicked. It's the unrighteousness within God's own people that Habakkuk is crying out for here. It's not the nations. It's God's own people, his firstborn child. And there's four ways in which you see that sin affects society. Firstly, there's a destruction. Look at that in verse 3. There's destruction and violence are before me. There's the pain of seeing energy and resources expended on destruction. There's a destruction, but secondly, there's conflict. There's strife and contention arises people are set at odds with one another you can see that around you can't you just go on twitter for five minutes it's basically all it's become oh for the days that it was taking pictures of your dinner who would have thought that that sort of mindless banality would be something we would long for romanticize for if only we could do something other than argue on twitter there's destruction there's conflict there's thirdly justice is lost the law is numb And justice never goes forth. The law seems simply powerless to bring justice at all. They've gone away from following the law of God. Now the law of God just seems to have no difference at all. And then fourthly, there's justice subverted. Justice is not only lost so that the law is not powerful enough to do anything significant, but it's the fact that justice is turned on its head. The wicked hems in the righteous. 
Justice is subverted. We see this around us, don't we? We see it here's just a couple of ways. The rich get richer while the poor get poorer. The weak get weaker and more oppressed whilst the strong get stronger and more privileged. To put it to contemporary culture, that's it's Mr. Burns. The rich get richer, the strong get stronger, the weak get weaker, the poor get poorer. But also values are flipped on their head. The wicked are now seen as righteous, and the righteous are now seen as wicked. To use another Simpsons character, it's Ned Flanders. The guy who actually, when you think about it, never does anything really wrong. Actually, he might be comical, but he's actually the good guy. The values are flipped on their heads. The wicked are seen as righteous, the righteous as wicked. There's some of the extent of the problem. And now we'll see God's answer in a moment. Uh, my granddad was full of sort of pithy sort of sayings and things, a lot of them quite dark because he was quite a sort of negative guy at times. But one of them that I've always held on to that there was always a lot of truth in, he used to say to me, don't ask questions you might not like the answers to. And his point wasn't, don't ask questions, quite the opposite. He was a very sort of cynical kind of person who would ask questions of everything. His point was, don't ask questions until you're ready to hear the real answer. The real answer that you might not like. Only ask a question if you're ready to really hear the answer to it. And we might say that about Habakkuk's questioning of God. Only ask the question of God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you not acting? If you're ready to hear the answer. See, Habakkuk thinks that the problem is him not knowing God's answer from him. Not knowing what God is doing. And yet, the problem here is so much deeper. The problem really is, we don't understand the connection between God's justice and God's grace. He was crying out in the midst of God's grace for justice, wasn't he? And now after the silence, we have God's response. And it comes as a sort of word of comfort, but with a twist. One of the commentators uh, notices this. He says that, you know, this, this response, this word of comfort comes as an oracle, a word of comfort here rather than a burden. An oracle could be a comforting thing. It could be a burdensome thing. At the beginning, Habakkuk is given an oracle that's a burden. Here, God is giving an answer that's a comfort. And yet, it's an unusual comfort because commentator uh, Charles here notices that it doesn't offer the usual comfort, but announces an attack by a cruel nation which will set Israel's wickedness right by a devastating judgment. It doesn't feel that comforting. And we're warned of its upcoming. Look at verse 5 there, that we're given these four words of alert. Look, see, be astonished, wonder. The silence may not have been so bad, after all, look, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. It wouldn't really help you to have known what I'm doing, even if you did, because you wouldn't understand it, you wouldn't believe it. You know, we can't stand it sometimes when we don't hear a response from God. And yet when he does, we often don't get it anyway. 
I'm raising up the Chaldeans, he says. The Chaldeans are the Babylonian people here. And the shock is, well, aren't Israel the special people that God works through? And here is God working through a foreign nation, a nation who don't know him and aren't righteous either. As much as Israel themselves are not righteous at this moment, they're getting plenty of things wrong, the Babylonians are not any better. They're probably worse. And look at what this nation is like. Firstly, they're conquerors. They march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're unjust, they're fearsome, they're dreaded and fearsome, we're told. They have this military might that their horses are swifter than leopards. They're fearless, verse 10, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. And they're idolaters, look at verse 11. They're guilty men whose own might is their God. The answer to simple Israelite society is to raise up the Babylonians to overtake and overthrow Israel. And this would be a surprise at this point because probably the moment at which Habakkuk is writing, Babylon have not yet ascended. It's actually Assyria that really are the strongest power, maybe followed by Egypt as well, who are also very significant. But at the time at which Habakkuk writes, is likely a few years actually before uh, Babylon sort of rises to ascendancy. It's probably around about sort of 6.9 to 6.15 or so A, uh, B.C. And it's in 605 B.C. that Babylon finally sort of consolidates its place as the global superpower. It wins this huge battle of Karshemish where it manages to outflank both Assyria and Egypt and then essentially takes control of that whole sort of region. But at this point it hasn't. So it would be a shock, one, that God is working with a foreign nation like this and that their ascendancy is going to be because God has underpinned that and allowed that. But it'd also be a shock in that Babylon at this point is not really the strong power that it will become. But there's the word of prophecy and promise from God that actually the answer to Israelites' uh, sin is to raise up the Babylonians to overtake and overthrow them. That God is using this nation now to fulfill his purposes. You know, if you'd known that, Habakkuk, would you have got it? Maybe God's silence isn't malicious. It's, would you have even had a framework to understand this if I told you? So Habakkuk renews his complaint here in verses 12 to 17. Why won't you act? And you can sort of understand Habakkuk coming back on this, can't you? How can this be right? How can this be okay? We might have got so many things wrong, but they're no better. Surely they're worse. Why are you now doing what I don't want? Again, it's about justice and suffering, isn't it? In light of God's judgments here of the people of God, he's now asking for grace. Before, he was frustrated at the grace of God that you're not doing enough you need to bring your justice amongst us and now when God promises that he's going to do something that will bring and restore justice he's asking for grace That's so often our problem isn't it that whatever it is that God is offering us it's not what we want at that moment Martin Luther writes 
about this. In fact, this is just a recording of one of his conversations at table with students and friends. He says, Howsoever God dealeth with us, it is always unacceptable. How, said Luther, should God deal with us? Good days we cannot bear, evil we cannot endure. Giveth he riches unto us, then we're proud, so that no man could live by us in peace. Nay, we'll be carried upon hands and shoulders and we'll be adored as gods. Giveth he poverty unto us, then are we dismayed, we're impatient and murmur against him. Therefore, nothing were better for us than soon to be conveyed to the last dance and covered with shovels. Luther's sort of solution to it is rather negative. It's you'll never really manage to shift this thing of whatever it is God gives you, whether grace or justice, or whatever, you'll always want the other and you'll never be happy. So the best thing is die quickly and be covered and then you'll be done with it. I think I have slightly more hope than Luther did. I think it's significant, one, even just to recognize that we have this problem, to secondly confess it, and thirdly ask the Spirit's help from it. Are you not from everlasting to everlasting, Habakkuk asks? Hang on, surely this can't be the end of the story here. And look at what he's saying here in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting to everlasting? As strong as they are, surely you are stronger. You must be. We shall not die. He said, surely you're not going to abandon your people completely. Surely you're not going to abandon your, your promises to build a nation of us through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Surely you're not going to turn back on that. You're a God who keeps covenant, who keeps your promises. So you see, he's thinking here, you, you've ordained them for judgment. Clearly for them to have risen like this, you must have allowed it. This must be showing something of your sovereignty. And you've established them for reproof. This can't be the end. It must be that you're using them to turn us back. This must be corrective and redemptive, not a sort of final judgment. All of which, by the way, is correct thinking. Of all I know of you, there must be more than meets the eye here. So his second major complaint is this. Is this, God, you're working with an unjust people, contrary to your good and just nature? You're one of purer eyes, verse 13 tells us, than to see evil. Why do you idly look at traitors? Habakkuk's concern isn't that Israel will be judged. He has asked for that. He's begun with his first complaint, asking that God would judge the people of God. The problem is that God seems to be here partnering with the wicked in order to do it. And Habakkuk does not understand that. And there isn't an easy answer here for this, is there? This is confusing. And here a dedicated prophet in the form of Habakkuk who's considered this, is reflecting this. This is hard for me to understand, for me to grasp. And then look at the way that this affects the people of God in verses 14 to 16. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. People of Israel here, Habakkuk 
claims and uses this imagery that you, we're being reduced to being no more than just sort of fish in the sea. We're insignificant, powerless, preyed upon and plundered. There's something inhumane about all of this. It reduces us to little more than mammals here. Look at the way in which the Babylonians will treat them. It's, it's not good, is it? He says he'll bring them up, all up with a hook. And the imagery is only partly metaphorical. It's partly literal. The Babylonians continued a tradition of the Assyrians before them. He treated prisoners of war brutally in order to create sort of docility amongst the rest of the population. Prisoners would be hooked through the nose and then attached via chains together and dragged out, processed publicly as a display of strength and weakness. Those not led by a hook would be dragged along in the nets, literally behind them. In fact, there's a uh, particular sort of relief that you can find of uh, the Babylonian gods Ningirisu, Shamash, Enlil and Marduk uh, dragging behind their sort of squirming enemies in a net. This is only partly actually metaphorical. It partly actually does happen physically for them. How can God be working with a people like this? There's something inhumane about it. There's also a power differential, isn't there? What can we even do to defend ourselves against this? We're helpless. We're like fish to a trawler. What are we seriously going to do to even be able to defend ourselves here? So then you see the question there, verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Will we even see justice restored? Or just injustice upon injustice? Sometimes it's hard to understand how God works, isn't it? How he works things out the way that he does. And here it frustrates Habakkuk. We see him playing through the pain. We see him that maybe we shouldn't ask questions we don't like the answer to. We see him ask again, why won't you act? And then lastly, we see this thing of knowing your role. Habakkuk has been honest, painfully honest, at God's silence and in his own frustration. And God speaks and with his plans. So, how will Habakkuk respond now after he's heard God's answer? After he's reiterated his complaint? Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 1 there. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he'll say to me and what I'll answer concerning my complaint. Look what Habakkuk doesn't do. In the face of confusion and frustration and not understanding God and having beforehand felt as though he'd not heard God at all, and now he hears him and he doesn't really understand, he doesn't really like what God's response is. Look what Habakkuk doesn't do. Habakkuk doesn't try to work it out himself. Habakkuk doesn't keep complaining. And Habakkuk doesn't sulk off. There's something about Habakkuk that he knows his role before God. 
And he goes back to a place of waiting to hear from him, waiting to see what he'll say. In fact, Habakkuk joins the great tradition of prophets who stand waiting for the word of God to come. We read of uh, Moses who stood in waiting for God's glory to pass before him in Exodus 33. We read of Balaam who went aside to stand in waiting for the revelation that God would bring to him in Numbers 23. We read of Elijah being commanded to go to the mountain and stand in waiting for the revelation of God in 1 Kings 19. He's joining a tradition of prophets before him who know their role of waiting to hear from God rather than trying to understand it himself or rather than skulking off in complaint. And yet, in contrast to those who would turn to their own imaginations, who would turn to the world's wisdom to understand this, Habakkuk seeks God. John Calvin writing about this, this feeling, this experience, this sort of frustration of wrestling to try to understand God, try to hear from him, try to make sense of what he says when he does speak. It says, all who indulge themselves in their own counsels deserve to be forsaken by God and to be left by him, to be driven up and down and here and there by Satan. For the only unfailing security for the faithful is to acquiesce to God's word. So for all Habakkuk's honesty, all his vulnerability in revealing his frustration, he goes back to wait to hear from God. And so in Habakkuk, we see a humility, don't we? That he's able to see that it's not his place to understand God. It is not his place to correct God. And yet, Habakkuk shows hope too, doesn't he? Because him going back to wait tells us that he believes that he will receive an answer from the Lord. I'm going back to wait to hear from him because I expect to hear from him. I'll look out to see what he'll say to me, he tells us, and what I will answer. This might be the most honest piece of scripture ever written. I'm going back to wait to hear from him and to plan my response. Don't you know that sort of feeling in the midst of conflict, in the midst of an argument? You're barely really listening because you're thinking already about what you're going to say back. And Habakkuk tells us honestly, I'll go back to wait to hear from you and to plan my response to what you're going to say. Because I think Habakkuk fully expects that he's going to be rebuked for his response. And so he's planning his response to God's response to him. And yet, we find that God doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't rebuke him. He does answer him. Habakkuk might not fully understand the answer at first. He might not fully like the answer at first. But God doesn't rebuke him in that way. But I think Habakkuk expects that that might be what's coming. Habakkuk doesn't get God. He doesn't like what he's doing, but he waits to hear from him. And he expects to hear from him. Habakkuk, I think, is much like us. He wants God's justice when God's patient. 
And when God judges, he wants his grace. But you know, the point of the chapter is not to come to the end of it and to sort of find a way in order to understand God better. You won't. You can't. The point of the chapter isn't to come to the end of it with some sort of simple three-point plan of how you'll understand God better. If you come away thinking that that's even possible, you've greatly misunderstood the chasm between us. Instead, there's a point at which we have to, like Paul, after us recognize our inability to fully understand God and what he's doing and who he is. So it tells us in Romans 11, verse 33, all oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So the point of the chapter is not to try to understand God better. The point of the chapter is to see that God provides for us in Jesus salvation from judgment and invitation to his grace. Habakkuk rightly acknowledges the problem of sin running rampant throughout society. That it is so deep and so pervasive that it's affecting everything. And as he looks out and observes that, he's not looking out to other people and saying, oh, these nasty other people around us. Too many people today, the thing that they talk about most is the problem of everybody else. How if only everybody else were more like this. And normally what that really means is, if only everybody else was like the sort of false projection of myself that I have as a hero in my mind, then the world would be perfect. Habakkuk doesn't do that. He realizes it's here with the people of God. That the problem of sin has become so pervasive amongst us that God's justice doesn't seem present here now. And it's tearing society apart for him within the people of God, before he even gets to anybody else. And he cries out for justice in the midst of God's patience. That couldn't something be done so that we would change? And yet he also cries out at, at this potential for this judgment here that, that, that seems to offer no hope. How can it be that you could work through a people like that to do this? And how do I make sense of this? And how can we find hope in the midst of this? The only hope in this chapter is to know that Jesus comes to give us both. To restore the world to justice and grace and that Jesus does that not just by sort of imposing himself upon people with a sort of display of, of military uh, might and legal uh, dictation to people in the way in which that you might think of a king or a ruler or an emperor 
But instead, Jesus comes and he brings justice and he restores grace and righteousness and peace to the earth by him facing the full weight of sin upon himself. That God himself answers the problem of injustice and sin and suffering by bearing the weight of it upon himself. And at its greatest point, not just the sin and the injustice and the suffering that comes from the rest of humankind, which we've seen here is pervasive and hugely destructive. But most of all, Jesus faces the dislocation and separation from his Father by being associated to us, by being numbered among us, by being seen, even for a brief moment, as the same. Being numbered amongst the transgressors, bearing upon himself sin and injustice. In order that through him he might also reestablish grace, that there might be hope of freedom, of new life through him. When we look to ourselves and when we're honest about our own nature and our own ability, our own capabilities and our own things that we're simply not capable of, it's hopeless. There is no hope at all. The best hope is a bit like Luther talking about that struggle of that faith and frustration is to think better just to die quickly and be covered over with dirt. Be done with it. Have less time to do less things wrong. No, the hope is the one who is by faith in Christ righteous shall live. The hope of the passage is so much more than thinking about some neat, tidy little framework that you might understand God more. No, you won't. The more that you learn, the less that you'll understand. But the hope of the passage is that God has delivered the very thing we need most in himself. And that's what Paul will pick up as we look through it in the new year. 600 or so years later, just as relevant for them there, that Jesus has done what nobody else could do to set us free from ourselves, from our sin, from our shame, from Satan's hold. Jesus has done it all. Let me pray for us and then we will uh, worship together through another uh, couple of songs. Father God, I'm sure that we all, like Habakkuk, know that sense and feeling of frustration and confusion times at which we feel as though we don't hear at all. We feel as though our voice just reverberates off the walls and nothing comes back. And we know something of those moments of just confusion at what you do say. I think I just don't understand. I don't get how that works, how that's right. I don't understand. I think we all know those feelings. Lord, thank you that we get an inside look at how this works for Habakkuk. Lord, encourage us, I pray, to be able to stand and wait to hear from you. To not look to understand it ourselves, to not look to the world to help understand it, to not run off and complain, but to wait. 
to wait to hear from you and to know and to expect that you will speak. Your voice will come. But Lord, we thank you most of all that the height of this problem here, this struggle, this contention of knowing that the world around us is so utterly unjust and that that's wrong and knowing the sense of deep suffering that pervades so much of life. We long for a way out. We long for a better life. We long for life as it was meant to be lived. And so, Lord, I thank you that you have enabled a way for us to experience that through the loving, sacrificial death of your son, bearing the full weight of every sin of ours, that you might bring a just love and grace to life, that we might have hope of change and hope of living as you have made us to live. Spirit, I ask that you might just impress something of the security and hope that we have in Jesus this morning in our hearts as we go out into the world this week and we go out into the brokenness and suffering and injustice to know that through you we have hope. And Lord, help us, I pray, to be able to share that hope and that love with those that you place us around as you continue to restore your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we thank you that that is the story of what is happening on this earth, that you are and you will restore your kingdom in all its fullness here. And we will know life in all of the fullness of joy that you meant it to be lived. And for that hope, Lord, we thank you and we pray you might ground us deeply in it. Amen.